Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our mission at Grace Bible Fellowship is to magnify the glory of the triune God in Christ Jesus by proclaiming God's word to advance the gospel in our lives and the world. We base who we are and what we do on the good news of Jesus. If you would like to find more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, you can visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. I'm so thankful you've come here to listen to God's Word proclaimed as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. good news I would like to share with you this morning before I read. Salvation is not through works of the law, but by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to God's glory alone. So the good news is you don't have to do anything to earn or merit God's salvation in your life. Does that sound too good to be true? It is. No, it's true. It's true. And why? Why is it that you don't have to do any works to attain salvation from God? Because God alone is going to get all of the glory. If we did something, if we earned our own salvation, if it was through works of the law, then there would be some boasting on our behalf. There would be some glory that would be due to us. But if it's nothing that we have done to earn our salvation, then all of the glory goes to God and to God alone. And that is good news. That is great news. That is the best news. That is the true news that issues forth from God's word and is to grab and grip our hearts and minds and lives. And so I pray that good news would grip our hearts and minds this morning. Would you stand with me? As I read for us from Isaiah chapter 9, I'm going to begin in verse 2, and I'm going to read through verse 7. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have not broken, or you have broken, as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. To the one who is Emmanuel, 
God, with us. May we know you are with us now. And may you be with us in the proclamation of your glorious word. Work in us by the power of your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. There's a reason why we give gifts at Christmas. So maybe here is a little theology of gift giving as you prepare for the Christmas season, as you do maybe your Christmas shopping. We give gifts at Christmas because we remember the greatest gift that has been given, a gift unlike any other gift, a gift greater than any other gift, the gift to end all gifts. Do we think about that when we give gifts? Do we think about this when we receive gifts? I am giving this gift to you because I want you to remember the greatest gift given, Jesus Christ. As I receive this gift, I remember the greatest gift anyone can receive is Jesus Christ. Is this why you give gifts? Is this why you receive gifts? When you do that, do it with a Christ-centered theology. Don't give and get with mind-numbing materialism or self-centered desires or with deceiving, idolatrous hearts. During this Advent season, I want us to meditate on the greatest gift and remember that the greatest gift given is first given to us by God. This isn't the gift of men. The giving is a divine giving, and it is flowing from a supernatural generosity. It's a gift that's almost too good to be true, for its worth cannot be calculated. How much has God given? More than we would be able to figure out, even if we spent our whole lives trying to add it all up. What God has given to us is not a thing, but a person. How much is a life worth? But this is not just any person. This is the Son of God. God has given His own Son as the gift. How much is He worth? Far more than our puny minds can comprehend. Yet, that does not mean we can't comprehend anything. There is much we can comprehend. There is much we can know of this gift. And we should want to know this gift. Knowing Christ is the heartbeat of Christ-centered theology and gospel-centered churches. I want to know Him more because my desire is for, for Him above all else. The problem is not that our desires for other stuff is too strong. The problem is that our desire for Christ often is paper thin. We want to grow in our understanding of this gift. We want to know who Jesus is. We want to grow in our faith and in our walk with Him. 
And what happens? What happens in our desire, in our quest to know more of Christ, to understand Him better, to follow Him with more faithfulness? When that happens, what's the response of our lives? It's an overflow of praise and thanksgiving to God so that we say with Paul, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. How great is this gift? Paul says it's inexpressible. You can't find the words to give thanks for this amazing gift. One of the most well-known verses surrounding the Christmas season might be Isaiah 9, 6. It's been galvanized into our minds by George Friedrich Handel, who includes this verse in one of his choruses in the masterpiece known as the Messiah. Into darkness, brokenness, fallenness, sinfulness, death has burst forth light which has brought inexpressible joy into our hearts. It highlights the gift that brings joy to people who once sat in darkness. Isaiah 9.3, you see this expressed, don't you? You have multiplied the nation. You have increased what? It's joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. What's the reason for this joy? Why are these people so excited, rejoicing, and glad? Well, this is the third reason. You can see the reasons just laid out there, right? So verse 3, you have, there's this joy. That's being expressed. Why? Verse 4, reason number 1, for the yoke of his burden. All of those, right? Verse 5, for every boot of trampling. Uh, Verse 6 now, the third reason. Why is there joy? For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The child is not born only for himself or for his parents or for his family, but for those who are saved by this child. A child is born to us because of what he will do for us. And he is a son given. That is, he is the heir, the ruler, the king. We can say this because of the context of these verses. The government will be upon his shoulder. He will bear the responsibility of the government on his shoulders. And guess what? His shoulders can bear it. He will bear this responsibility of the government and will do so with righteousness and justice. Who is it that the shoulders of the weight of the government can be able to stand this weight, this burden, but a ruler and a king? How this might rid us of any cynicism when it comes to politics and government Who can bear the weight of the government upon his shoulders? Certainly no one in Washington or in London or any other capital that you can think of. And then we are told something amazing in verse 6. And his name shall be called. 
Do you notice anything interesting about this? Maybe Isaiah misspoke. Isaiah, you said his name. Name is singular. But then you go on to give a list of names. Shouldn't it be his names shall be called? But Isaiah didn't misspeak. He said exactly what he intended to say or what God wanted him to say. It is named because this child and this son has only one name. And I believe Isaiah knows exactly what he is doing because having one name, he bears the divine one name. Just like Jesus says in Matthew 28, 19, he says, baptizing them in the name, one name, singular, the divine name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Those who are saved by Christ are to be baptized not into many names, but into the one divine name, the name of God. And so what is this list then that we are looking at in Isaiah 9? These are all facets of the divine name. One name with different perspectives on that one name and truths and specifics that make up this divine name that is upon him. These do not and cannot exhaust the divine name, but they begin to help us understand the gloriousness of Jesus Christ. It's like we're holding up a precious diamond in our hands. And as we turn the diamond, it continues to catch the light. And with each turn, we see another aspect of its brilliance, its magnific magnificence, and its beauty. And with the first turn of this diamond, we see the radiance of wonderful counselor. We might need to clear something up here at the beginning as it relates to wonderful counselor. If you're to listen to Handel's Messiah, you hear them sing, wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting, on and on and on. I'm not going to sing the whole thing. But you hear the pause there, right? They say, wonderful, pause, counselor, like those are two different things. But I don't think that's correct. I don't think these words should be split up. I think they go together. Wonderful counselor. In fact, we see this pattern even in our English versions, right? You have a, a noun and an adjective. So in this case, there is a prince. What describes this prince? Well, he's a, a, he's a peaceful prince. A father. What describes the father? Everlasting. God, what describes God? Mighty. And so, counselor, what describes counselor is wonderful. Jesus then is the wonderful counselor, or it could be said the counselor of wonders, or even wonder counselor. But why is Jesus the wonderful counselor? And what does that mean for us? I want to answer this question, but perhaps not the way we might usually think. I want the rest of the book of Isaiah to help us answer this question. Are there any clues about this wonderful counselor that we can glean from Isaiah? Well, I think that there are, and these will relate to your outline there in your bulletin if you'd like to follow along. But number one, Jesus is the wonderful counselor because he is the anointed, because he is anointed with the spirit of counsel. Jesus is the wonderful counselor because he is anointed with the spirit of counsel. So 
Here you have to turn over a few chapters to Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah 11 tells us more about this one who is to come. He is the king. He is the Messiah. He's described as the shoot from the stump of Jesse. Do you remember the line of Jesse? Who came from Jesse famously? It was David, right? And it's described as this shoot, right, that's coming out of this stump. So there's this tree imagery. Kingdoms are often represented by trees in the Bible. So there's a little key. Stick that in the back of your mind when you're reading God's Word. These idea of kingdoms are often represented by trees. So what's the picture? Well, there is a tree. What happens when a tree gets cut down? Well, there's a stump that's left there, right? But now what? There's this shoot coming out of this stump of Jesse. So what is this? This is the final Davidic king, the son of God that's promised in 2 Samuel chapter 7. This one will be identified because the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. This is what happens at Jesus' baptism. The spirit of the Lord descends from heaven like a dove, rests upon Jesus. There is a visible sign that the Holy Spirit is resting on Jesus. So Jesus is the spirit-anointed Messiah, the one Isaiah 11 promised. But what of this spirit who rests upon Jesus? Why must Jesus have the spirit rest upon him? Can he do everything that he's going to do apart from the spirit? Well, look at what this spirit, who this spirit is that rests upon him. Verse 2 of Isaiah 11. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel. There's that same word that we're looking at, wonderful counselor, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Jesus is to be considered as the wonderful counselor because he has the Holy Spirit of counsel upon him. But what do we mean by this word counsel or counselor. Perhaps we might think of a therapist or a psychologist. Is this what Isaiah means when he uses the word counsel or counselor? There is no doubt what some people are looking for is a counselor. They have problems and they need someone to listen to their problems and give them some advice. Do you ever think of Jesus in this way? Oh man, Jesus is a wonderful counselor. He is an amazing shrink. He will figure it out, the jumbled mess I've made out of my life, and will tell me what I want to hear. Is that the life that Jesus gives? Does he just give one extraordinary psych session that we look forward to? This message this morning is not, you've got an empathetic therapist in Jesus. And I wonder if you are disappointed with that. It doesn't mean Jesus doesn't listen. It doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't care. He listens better than what you can say. He loves more and purer than you know. 
However, he doesn't put you at the center of everything. He doesn't make everything revolve around you. It's better than that. Jesus ensures that you and your life and all that you are revolve around him. He is the center. He is everything. And so he tells us how our life is to revolve around him, be lived for him. What does it mean then that Jesus is a counselor and he gives counsel? Well, here you see this word counsel coupled with another word. The spirit of counsel and what? And might. So, go now to Isaiah chapter 36, verse 5. Isaiah 36, verse 5. Here, King Hezekiah is taking a stand against Assyria. Assyria has come. They're wanting to wage war against Jerusalem. Hezekiah is taking stand. And here's what Rabshakeh, the emissary of Assyria, is saying, said to them, verse 4, Say to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, On what do you rest this trust of yours? Verse 5, do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? And so, what's, what's being said here? Well, look at those words again. Verse 5, do you think that mere words are strategy? That's actually that same word for counsel and power, that same word for might. Do you think that mere words are counsel and might for war? Here, this council refers to military council, military strategy. Do you think that words are going to produce great military strategy? In fact, Rabshakeh is mocking the Israelites, isn't he? He's saying, you think you're going to trust in the Lord? What are you going to do? Are you going to trust on his words for mere strategy and power? Or are you going to trust in man, even mocks him? Are you going to trust in Egypt? Go down there and trust in Egypt to save you? But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying Judah and Jerusalem shall worship you before this altar? You shall worship before this altar? He's mocking their trust in God. He's saying, do you think this God is going to give you the counsel that you need to save you, to rescue you? It reminds us that what we need is this king, a king who has the ability to devise the right course of action and who has the personal prowess to see that action through 
regarding military advancement. The king's counsel is extraordinary because it finds its source in the divine spirit. The Holy Spirit resting upon him is an indication that he will reign victorious and that nothing will stop him because of this supernatural, spirit-empowered counsel that is upon him. Why is this good news for us? So I'm saying here, Jesus being the wonderful counselor is referring to this counsel of military might and strategy. Military might and strategy so much so that when the spirit of counsel is upon him, it leads him into victory. What does this mean then for us? It ensures victory over our worst enemies, victory over Satan, victory over sin, victory over death. You want a spirit-anointed, wonderful counselor because his success means your success. His triumph means your triumph. His victory is your victory. Then reason number two, Jesus is the wonderful counselor because he accomplishes his sovereign plan. Jesus is the wonderful counselor because he accomplishes his sovereign plan. Do you make plans? Are you a planner? How does it feel when your plans don't work out the way that you thought they would? Sometimes you might do everything within your power to try to make those plans happen, and yet they still don't turn out the way that you think. We have a great plan for our lives, but so often we have to learn what Proverbs 16.9 says. It says, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Try as we may, there are times we can't accomplish our plans, but the wonderful counselor does not have that problem, for there is a sovereign plan he accomplishes through his person and through his work. Look at Isaiah 25. Isaiah 25. <clears throat> oh Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name. Why? For you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old faithful and sure. Here are the two words again. For you have done what? Wonderful things and plans. Plans is the same word as counsel. Counsel formed of old, faithful and sure. What is this wonderful counsel that is from of old, that is faithful and sure? If you read on in Isaiah 25... It's the gathering of all the world's faithful remnant together. Who will accomplish this? Who will bring about this wonderful counsel but the royal Messiah who is the wonderful counselor? It's nothing less than the sovereign plan of redemption where he will swallow up death forever and wipe away tears from all faces. 
What a wonder that those who were once dwelling in darkness have been called into his marvelous light. What a wonder is this, that those who were not a people are now the people of God. What a wonder that those who had once not received mercy have now received mercy. What a wonder that those who were once enemies of God are now now called children of the living God. Who could accomplish such wonderful things but the wonderful counselor? And finally, number three this morning, Jesus is the wonderful counselor because he will establish his everlasting kingdom. Jesus is the wonderful counselor because he will establish his everlasting kingdom. The decisions of a king can make or break a kingdom. A foolish king will bring destruction upon the kingdom. This is why Solomon, what does he do? He asks for wisdom. Under his God-given wisdom, the kingdom flourishes and prospers. It experiences peace and security and unity. In the book of Isaiah, Isaiah says there is going to come a new day, and with this new day comes a place. It's called the new Zion. The Lord is going to lay a new Zion. And when that day comes, it will be an amazing day. It'll be the day that we sing about. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And it's this day that's talked about in Isaiah 28. Look at Isaiah 28 with me for a moment here. Isaiah 28. Isaiah 28, verse 29. Well, let's back up. Before we get to 29, let's back up. Let's start in verse 16. What is this new Zion like? It's a city whose builder is God and whose foundation is Jesus Christ. Look at what 16 says. Therefore, says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. We know from the New Testament, Peter even picks this up in 1 Peter, who is that cornerstone? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of this new Zion that's being laid. And because he is the foundation, because he is the cornerstone, he will uphold the whole city, the whole building. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And then look at how Isaiah caps off this promise in verse 29. This also comes from the Lord of hosts. He is what? 
He is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. It is by this wonderful counsel and by this excellent wisdom that the Lord establishes his everlasting kingdom. Who is it that can establish and rule over an everlasting kingdom but a wonderful counselor who is the everlasting God and who is able to rule with everlasting wisdom? Do you understand that? If you're going to have an everlasting kingdom, you need to have an everlasting king who has and possesses everlasting wisdom. With such a wonderful counselor, we see the promise of Isaiah 126 come to fruition. What does Isaiah 126 say? Last verse in Isaiah this morning. Isaiah 126. What is this new Zion like? Let me start in verse 24. Therefore the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, ah, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. I will turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lye and remove all your alloy. And I will restore your judges as at the beginning and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. How is the Lord going to be able to restore judges and restore counselors in this city? How is it that this city is going to be called a city of righteousness and the faithful city? Well, is it not because the wonderful counselor is ruling over the city? The wonderful counselor who rules with righteousness and with faithfulness. The wonderful counselor who will establish this everlasting kingdom. But I haven't even said the most wonderful thing yet. How is this wonderful counselor going to do this? How is he going to establish this kingdom? How is he deserving to receive such a kingdom? And how does he secure his dominion over all things with the certainty that he will make everything right and that he will cause everything sad to come untrue. The wonderful counselor died. The curtain has been pulled back and the plan, the strategy, the counsel has been unveiled for all to see. And what did he plan? Truly something wonderful. He would die on the cross to save his people from their sins. He would supernaturally die, supernaturally be risen again from the dead to redeem lost sinners, to forgive them of their sin, to give them the gift of eternal life, to bring them into the family of God with the hope of life lived forever in the new Jerusalem. What wisdom once devised the plan where all our sin and pride was placed upon the perfect lamb who suffered, who bled, who died. The wisdom of a sovereign God who makes his mercy known. 
This is the glory of the cross. Wonder of wonder, miracles of miracles, Jesus, the wonderful counselor, the one who had the spirit of counsel upon him, the one who accomplishes his sovereign plan, the one who establishes his everlasting kingdom, died to give us life and to give us a kingdom. To give us a kingdom that's unlike any earthly or worldly kingdom, for this is a kingdom that cannot and will not be shaken. Hebrews 12, 22. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. What do you do with a wonderful counselor like this? Do you not marvel at him and stand in wonder and in awe of this plan, this counsel that he devised and carried out in order to save sinners like you and like me? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for our Savior who is the wonderful counselor. And what he has done in order to save us. May we not lose sight of the wonder of the gospel of Jesus Christ. May we not lose sight of the wonder of the person of Jesus May we not be bored or to treat this one in a nonchalant, ho-hum, indifferent attitude and manner. But may we be renewed in the awe of who he is in our minds. May we be renewed in knowing that he is wonderful. May we take time to think about his greatness as we stand in awe of him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.